Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, we are in the middle of a series uh, going through the Gospel of Matthew, and it's going to take us a while to get through it, and so we've broken uh, that series up into a number of smaller series as we make our way through. And for the last number of weeks, I can't even remember how long, and probably through the rest of the summer, we're going to be looking at the bulk of the center, kind of the middle part of the Gospel of Matthew, just asking the question, what does it mean for us to live as Jesus' disciples? And I feel like I've been beating up on you, and it, but I don't know why I feel that way, because it's not me, it's Jesus. Um, maybe he's been beating up on us uh, in, in some of the hard teachings we've had to deal with over the last few weeks, so I'm very grateful for the balance the Scripture offers in this passage this morning, which is about rest. Uh, so we're going to read it together. It's, it's long. You'll see that Jesus teaches us about rest, and he illustrates that teaching by giving two examples of, of some things that happen on the Sabbath. I intended to get to all that. There's no way we're going to. We may come back to this next week, but we're going to read all of it anyway. So beginning in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, and then through chapter 12, verse 14. So read along with me in your worship folder on the screen behind me or in a Bible in your pew as we just look at what Jesus has to say to us here. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father. For such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man who was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Or how much more of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So... It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Uh, This is God's word. Uh, As I've said, Matthew wants us to become Jesus' disciples. He wants us to hear the teachings of Jesus and put them into practice. And this is the way he's been doing this in his gospel. He'll give us a bulk of Jesus' teachings like he did in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he'll illustrate the practical implications of those teachings through stories of miracles and parables and and certain things. And so again in Matthew 10, he gives us, you know, a a bulk of teaching on what Jesus understands the mission is going to be like, and now in chapters 11 and 12, he's kind of illustrating that teaching for us in some other teachings and some parabolic sayings and some of the stories about John the Baptist and the like. So what we learn then is that to become Jesus' disciple requires a lot of hard work and sacrifice. I mean, that's what we've been seeing. You have to confront every 
other competing allegiance. You have to take up your cross. You have to go to your own death. He even says you have to lose your life for his sake. And that's how you find it. So if you're a Christian, then it just means this, that your Christianity is going to require a lot of blood and sweat and tears. But what Jesus says in these verses, that so, I mean, this is, I mean, breath of fresh air, such good news for me. He says that underneath, what Jesus is trying to say is that underneath all of the hard work and sacrifice, there's a, there's a pervasive rest. And that's how you know you're a true disciple. I mean, lots of blood and sweat and tears, but underneath all of it, there's a pervasive rest. I mean, rest. I mean, you're, you're busy loving people. You're advancing violently into the kingdom of God, as he's just said to John. But there's rest. There's also rest. And so part of learning from Jesus is learning to rest. He says, learn from me there. That's the call to discipleship. And so let me just do a couple things before we get into this first. Um, here's just the metaphor for what this word rest means. It literally refers to the loosening of strings on a musical instrument. Right? If you, if you have a guitar or you're familiar with guitars, you know that if the air pressure, you know, that, that it, you travel someplace and if it's colder one place than the other, then the kind of the neck bows or it straightens out and the, the, the strings can come, become really, really tight. And if you don't loosen them, you might play and guess what will happen? I mean, they'll just, they'll snap. I mean, if you've ever heard the statement, boy, she's high strung. Right? Some of the men are looking at their wives right now. I don't know why that's happening. Or, you know, or he, you know, he needs to loosen up. I mean, that's literally what's being referred to here. This rest means not always forcing your will on, other, on your circumstances. It means, you know, I, this is, I've tried to just think about it in my own life, not always evaluating your performance or the performance of other people. You know, you're... Or worse, you know, there's not this sense of perfectionism that you you don't need to have all of the answers. I mean, there's just a loosening that can happen that can just kind of, okay, we can take a breath. And what's fascinating to me is Jesus is so committed to this in our life uh, that for the the few of us whom he loves the most, who have the hardest time with this, he's going to come after you in this. I mean, he's really going to come after you. And this is a problem for me. I mean, I could tell loads of stories. My favorite story is, is I, I was, there was a couple of years ago, there's a, a we, we camp in West Virginia uh, every summer, and we, we were having a, a John Eldridge moment, what I call a John Eldridge moment, and we were on the back fork of the Elk River fly fishing, you know, I mean, walking, you know, oh, man, I mean, just manly stuff, right? I mean, it was a beautiful day, 65 degrees, gorgeous. And about 30 minutes into our trip, I remembered that I had not called to let somebody know that I was going to be out of town for a meeting that was going to happen, and they were expecting me at the meeting. And I got so knotted up over, you know, how I had failed this person who was going to be looking for me at the meeting that it ruined my entire day. I mean, this is, this, I mean, this is me. I mean, this, I'm, I'm talking, you know, to my own heart and all these things. But it's interesting to me to see how God will take a, a beautiful, wonderful, active, I mean, can get more work done than anybody else in the room, lady like Amy Dodd, and put her on her back. Right? Or, or uh, my, my brother-in-law, Matt Diaz, who plays for the Braves, who makes a living by holding a bat in his hand, and he can do amazing things with a 34-ounce bat. And yet, he's had surgery, so now he can't even pick one up. Or a lady like Kim Avery, who, who is so powerful and in, in, in so uh, ministers to people through the words that she speaks and God chooses to take her voice away for a few months. 
I mean, just how committed God is to going after us, to teach us to rest, to learn how to do this well. And what Jesus says is, is if you're following him, then what it's going to feel like, it's going to feel like work and rest. Rest and work. And the, the problem is, is those seem like two contradictory realities. And so we've got some work to do to explain what Jesus means in these verses when he says, come and I will give you rest. So here's what we're going to do this morning. Four things I want us to see uh, from this passage. First, uh, what the rest is. What is this rest that Jesus offers us in these verses? So what is it? Secondly, why do we need it? Thirdly, why can only he give it to us? And fourth, how do you get it? So that's just where we're going to go. First, what is this rest? Why do we need it so much? Why can only he give it to us? And then lastly, how do you get it? So, this is going to be fun. I've been looking forward to this for a while. So let's talk about this together this morning. What is the rest that Jesus offers us here in these verses? So let's, let's look at this. Let's start with what the rest is not. Can we do that? And what it, what it can't be is it can't be the cessation of work. Um, when most of us think of rest, and this was an interesting metaphor, we think of a corona commercial. Yeah, they, that got an amen, right? A hammock or a beach chair on some tropical island with no interruptions. And so the rest that Jesus offers us in eleven twenty-eight through 30 is connected in chapter 12 with the concept of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath, you know, was one day in seven for rest. And so, but see, when most of us think of Sabbath, when we start, you know, thinking of what it means to rest, we think a long afternoon nap or nine holes on the golf course or some other recreational activity. The Sabbath means no work. Rest is the absence of work. So in most of our minds, rest and work are incompatible. If I'm working, I'm not resting. And if I'm resting, I'm not working. But that's not what the Sabbath is about. You see, our Sabbath is modeled after God's Sabbath in Genesis 1. And even though the text says God rested from his work of creation on the seventh day... And get this, did you, did you notice in Exodus 31 when we read it a minute ago, it said God was refreshed? What does that mean? I mean, it can't mean God was tired and needed a break. Because we, we, he's, he's inexhaustible and infinite in his power. It can't mean that he stopped working. Because if he stopped working, if his power and authority stopped flowing to creation, the universe would be destroyed. It would roll up like a scroll, the Bible says. So Sabbath for God doesn't mean no work. It isn't the absence of work. And so for us, it's not either. The Sabbath refers to a rest that can permeate our work, a pervasive rest that's underneath all of our work. So when Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest... I'm sad to say he isn't proposing early retirement or, and this is my favorite, or a quote-unquote under-the-covers Sunday afternoon nap or a life of leisure and ease. He wants to put us to work. I mean, look there at the passage. He offers us a yoke. He says, take my yoke. And this is where it can be a little confusing because Jesus is saying, I want to give you rest, but the only way you can find the rest that I'm offering is by taking my yoke and learning from me. And that's discipleship. But let's ask a couple more questions about what Jesus means by this metaphor. I mean, what is, what is this yoke he's talking about? Well, I mean, you know, you know what a yoke is. It's a piece of wood that farmers put over the heads and across the shoulders of their you know, animals, their oxen or their donkey or whatever, 
and the oxen would lean, can lean their weight into the yoke and use it as leverage to push the plow to plow up the dirt. And it's interesting, the word in English has come to be synonymous with just with the idea of work. And a person's yoke is that, per, I mean, it's the work that person has to do. It's a word we use to describe something burdensome or oppressive. And Jesus even parallels those things in verse 30. But what we need to see is in ancient Jerusalem, in ancient Judaism, every rabbi had a yoke. I mean, every rabbi in ancient Judaism had a yoke. Uh, a certain set of rules or practices or guidelines, a specific way of living. Okay, So you would come to a rabbi and that rabbi would have a, a yoke. Because the Bible, you know, in reality is open-ended in many ways and needs to be interpreted. So for example, the Bible says, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy and don't work. But here's the problem. It leaves us with all kinds of questions that the Bible doesn't specifically answer. Like, what is work? I mean, what qualifies as work? What doesn't qualify as work? Or, you know, my my other favorite is the example, love your neighbor. But then, remember the lawyer that comes to Jesus and what's his question? Who is my neighbor? And so there's all this work of interpretation that needs to be done when you approach the scripture. So every rabbi would answer those questions and they would come up with a certain list of guidelines and principles and rules by which you have to live and that would be their yoke. And when a a person set out to follow any particular rabbi, they would take on that rabbi's yoke. They would follow that rabbi's teaching and incorporate it into their life. And Jesus says he is a yoke too. But his yoke is different. He says that his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. So this is the rest. And it's good news to us because most of us are exactly as Jesus describes in this passage in verse 28. And here's why we need the rest he offers us so badly. Is that we are laboring, as he says, and heavy laden. Now the word laboring there refers to work that leads to weariness or exhaustion. Heavy laden refers to having to carry around a heavy load on your shoulders I mean, it's, this is terrible, but the metaphor that always, the image that always comes to mind, there was a guy in my fraternity in college. He was a big guy, but I remember we, we used, there was an apartment on the third story of this apartment complex, and he could put a keg of beer on each shoulder and climb three flights of stairs. That's impressive. Can I tell you? I mean, that's just, for whatever reason, I'm sorry for the unsanctified, you know, thing, but that's just what comes to mind. I think, how does that guy, holy cow. Or if you've ever, you know, if you've ever heard, um, you know, I feel like the weight of the world is on my shoulders, right? I mean, that's the idea there, just being weighed down or crushed. And that's a really good description of most of our lives. Uh, we're, we're tired, we're stressed out, we're needing a break. 75 to 90% of physician visits in the United States are stress-related. Uh, I just did some research. Americans work more, and some of this is going to be good news for a lot of you. Americans work more than any other industrialized nation in the world. And the overwhelming majority of people claim that their work is the main source of stress in their lives. To get ahead in the business world, a 70-hour work week is the new standard. Um, Americans work 12 more weeks a year than Europeans do in total hours. This one was amazing to me. The United States is one out of only five countries out of 173 in the world that does not guarantee some form of paid maternity leave. And I didn't know this, but 65%, I mean, excuse me, 65 countries in, in, in the world offer fathers paid parental leave of up to 14 weeks. Like, dang, where's that? I mean, it just shows 
that we're a culture obsessed with work. And Dan Allender, in a book he wrote on the Sabbath, makes an interesting observation. He says, you know, what's fascinating is that in an, that in an increasingly secular and godless culture, it's, it's still rare for people to go around, go around bragging about how they break the Ten Commandments. I mean, nobody, nobody just boasts about how they lie or how they envy or how, you know, they commit adultery. They don't wear those things as a badge of honor with one exception, and that exception is our violation of the Fourth Commandment. I mean, what Allender calls our debasement with busyness. We don't obey the Sabbath command. He goes on to say, we love to tell others how much we work, how, how much we still have to get done, how overwhelmed we are with the exhaustion of our labor because we admire busyness, speed, and productivity. And yet we envy those whose leisure time is abundant. We are flagrant. We are absolutely flagrant in our culture of our abuse of the command to rest. And Jesus offers us a yoke. He offers us work that won't result in weariness, but that leads to rest. And that means the weariness doesn't come from the working. I mean, you see that the weariness doesn't come from the working. It comes from carrying a yoke other than Jesus' yoke. And so we have to ask, what's gone wrong with our work? Why are we so stressed out? You know, why are we working so hard? What are we trying to accomplish? And what is this rest that Jesus keeps talking to us about? It's fascinating. Just explain that a little bit. I've been, and I know this is crazy, but I've been, um, well, maybe it's not, but I've been memorizing um, the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, just kind of as a spiritual practice in my own life uh, this year. And one of the questions in the Catechism, it asks about what, what the misery of the estate whereinto man fell is. In other words, if we, if the categories the confession uses is we're sinful and miserable, well, what is, what is it that really makes us miserable? What is the thing in our lives that really creates the misery, the sadness, the, the pain that so many of us live with? And I wonder how you'd answer that question. I mean, what is it? What is it that really attribute, that we can attribute to all of the sadness and the misery that we live with? And the catechism, catechism's answer is just this, that all mankind by their fall, lost communion with God and are under his wrath and curse. Now think about that. I mean, the great misery, the greatest pain and sorrow of human existence, this is what it is, that we've lost a sense of connection with the God who created us. That our sin and our rebellion have separated us from him and we're under his wrath and curse, and that is a powerful psychological reality in every single one of our lives. We've lost God in our sin, you know, we're all alone. We're, we're all alone to provide for ourselves and we're under his wrath and his curse. We're ugly. We're insignificant. Nothing. This is what our, this is kind of how our, you know, our psychology works. And, and think about, think about how this, think about all the stories and all the movies you go to about a son, for example, who grows up and doesn't know his father's love and approval, you know, and he ha- or he has to endure his father's anger or disapproval or indifference, or worse, he's abandoned by his father. I mean, how does it affect that boy? What's he do? I mean, you know the story. It usually goes something like this. He sets out to prove his father wrong by being successful, or he works himself to death to try to win his father's love and approval and acceptance. But the void, the void of the father's approval and love and delight and presence create an ambition in that boy to prove himself and to provide for himself because nobody else is going to do it. And I just want to say, those aren't just stories. That's our story. I mean, they describe what we all feel in our estrangement from the person that really matters. And that means what Jesus is trying to teach us is there's a work. There's a work underneath all of our work that Jesus is exposing. A work underneath the work. 
That when you're working, you're working. And when you're resting, you're still working. There's a work underneath all of our work. A work to provide for ourselves. A work to prove ourselves. A work to make a name for ourselves. To find a righteousness for ourselves. To feel safe and to be somebody and to count. Because the reality is in our sin, we don't know we count. We don't know we are loved. We're not sure. And so, I mean, what this does is it creates just we this, this feel guilty. We exhaust ourselves to be the best in our business or to follow the rules or to be religious or to be a good mom in the hope that our success or our goodness will quiet our conscience on the inside, but they don't. And this is what happened in these rabbis' yoke. These rabbis would make a yoke, and the point of the yoke was, man, if you can follow all the rules, then you can be sure that you can, you, you'll be righteous. This is the way to get a righteousness. This is the way to make sure God's pleased with you. Here are all the rules you've got to follow, man. If you don't follow one of them, you're in trouble. But if you can check them off down the list and you can get everything done, man, then at the end of all of that, it's going to be great. God's going to love you. You're going to live in his blessing and favor. It's going to be fantastic. But what the scripture teaches us is it doesn't matter how much we do. It's never enough. It doesn't matter how good we are, it's never enough. We end up weary with the weight of the world on our shoulders, full of regret and shame and a deeper sense of failure. And this is, this is how this works. We were, we were cracking up hysterically about this last night at the beach. Have you ever done this? This is just a snapshot of my own life. I will, I'll walk into a room and Ashley will be in there and I'll just have this look on my face and she'll say, what's the matter? And I'll stop and I'll say, I can't remember. But I got... You're, you're, does this ever happen? I, there's this, like, I feel this anxiety, like, right here. And I literally have to, I think, what? oh, I remember why I feel that way. I mean, it's like there's this white noise of anxiety. Does anybody, ever, does anybody else deal with that? I mean, sometimes I can't even remember what I'm anxious about. I'm so anxious. I know I'm anxious. I feel it. But I, can't, I, mean, I have to go back. And maybe I'm getting old. I don't know. But I have to go back and I say, no, it's not that. It's not, it's not, oh, that's why. And then I can connect it. But it's just there. It just lives there. It resides there all the time. You know, this white noise of unrest, of anxiety. And that's, you know, welcome to my life. Pray for my wife. She's worse than me is the thing. So we're a mess. Man. Jesus says, if you come to me, I can end all that. That's what he's saying. Just like there's a work that permeates all of our work, Jesus is offering us a rest that can permeate all of our work so that even when we're working, we can still rest. And when we're resting, man, we can really rest. You see, everybody is working for the weekend, as the old 80s song goes. And here's the way it is. We're all working ourselves to death in hopes that on the other side of the work, maybe we'll find some rest. Uh, What Jesus is saying is that there's a rest that we can enter into before we go out into all of our work. And the way this works with the Sabbath, think about just this example. In the Old Testament, the people of God celebrated the Sabbath on the last day of the week. They worked all week, and then at the end of the week, they rested on the Sabbath. So they worked and worked and worked and worked and worked, and at the end of all of their work, there was a Sabbath. But the New Testament Christians, they understood something. They understood something about this rest that Jesus offers us. And so now... We celebrate the Sabbath rest on the first day of the week, and then we live out the rest of the week out of that rest. And so the rest isn't waiting for us at the end of the week. It isn't, it isn't waiting for you at the end of your list being checked off. It's right there at the beginning of the week. It's right there as you move out before your work begins. That's what Jesus is saying he can do. You see, our work has gone wrong because we've lost communion with God. 
That's the great misery, and that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. He's come to bring us back into communion with God. His offer is that we can work in union with him and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Because you see, a yoke, it ties you to something. He says, take my yoke. Tie yourself to me. That's what he's offering us here. And that means two things. It means, number one, that we are tied to him and his work. And here's where the rest comes from. We are tied to him and his work. And then secondly, he's tied to us in ours. So just really quickly, we're tied to him and his work. Here's what this means. In the very last pages of the Bible, we read that the the result of all of Jesus' work will be a new heavens and a new earth. And here's what John says about that. He says, behold, it's emphatic. He says, check this out. Here's the end result. The dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he will be with them as their God. John goes on to say, he says, in that day, we're going to look in God's face. We're going to be able to look in his eyes. Man. You see, Jesus came to do that. Jesus came to make that possible. He came to deal with sin. He came and he took our curse upon himself. On the cross, he took our wrath. And if your faith is in Jesus Christ, there's no more wrath for you. It fell on him. He came not only to take upon himself our record of take upon himself our record of sin and disobedience, but he came in order to give us his perfect record of righteousness. And if your faith is in Jesus, then not only are your sins forgiven, but the Father now delights in you for the sake of Jesus, and you can have communion with him. And here's what this means. It means that you can now know and experience the Father's love and acceptance. You don't have to work for it. It's yours in Jesus. And that's why his yoke is easy. That's why his yoke is easy. That's why his burden is light. The work underneath the work is gone. You see that? We don't, we don't have to work hard and succeed in order to count. We, if your faith is in Christ, you already count because of his work on your behalf. We don't, we, you know, we can work hard, but not because we have to, but because we delight to, and that's the rest, that Jesus has, has fulfilled all the demands of the law. He's followed all the rules and he can offer us a righteousness by faith. Jesus stood on the cross. And on the cross he yelled, it is finished. And if your faith in him, if your faith is in him, then indeed it is. It's done. And when you believe in him, you're tied to him in his work. That's what he's offering you. But not only that, but he offers to tie himself to you in your work. So when you believe in him and follow him, you're tying yourself to him so that, here's what happens, so that not only... When he cries, it is finished, is your work done? But now his power and his authority and all the resources that he has begin to flow from him through you and into your work, whatever it may be. So you're tied to him in his work, but he gets tied to you in yours. And so one commentator put it particularly well. I thought he said, the rest Jesus offers is not a relaxation of the demands of righteousness, but a new relationship with God which makes it possible to fulfill them. And the promise is the promise of the Spirit, that God can come and give you a new heart, animating your life toward the obedience He calls you to. So being yoked to Him means you're tied to Him in His work, and He's accomplished it. But He's also tied to you in yours, so now all of His power and His authority and His presence and His resources through the person of the Holy Spirit can come into your life and begin to work through your life into the work that He's called you to. That's the way this works, by faith. Now... Really quickly, because we need to be wrapping up in just a minute. Uh, two, thi- two more things. Then w- only Jesus can make this offer f- to you. No one else can. And here's why. Look at verse 27. 
If you want to know what verse 27 is all about, it means he, he means to teach us just this, that he is the only one that can give you rest because he's the only one who can offer you a real solution to your problem. All the other teachers and belief systems and self-help books can offer all kinds of techniques and strategies, but Jesus says you have to come to me because what you really need is not a new technique. You need to be rightly related to the Father, and I can do that. And then he says this, Come to me. Trust me. Because I'm gentle. And I'm lowly in heart. So see, you can trust him. He's not a demanding parent who's never pleased no matter how hard you work. He's not hypercritical. He's gentle. He's soft. He doesn't yell. He's considerate. He's patient with us in our struggles. And he's lowly of heart, he says. That means he doesn't stand above us looking down his nose at us. You know, Paul says in Philippians 2... That though he was God, he didn't grasp his divinity, but became nothing. The most high became the most low. Why? Because of his love for you and me. And so you can trust him. You can follow him. You see, that's, that's what Jesus is reasoning with, with, with us about. You can take up his yoke because he's gentle and lowly, and his yoke is easy. Verse 30, that word there, that word easy is best translated pleasant or good. In other words, Jesus is unlike any other master because his demands are not made from any selfish motivation. He has one agenda, and that agenda is to love us. He's trying to lead us to paths of the greatest delight. And all that he's been teaching us, even the hard stuff, every command is for our good. He's been saying, this is life. Jesus doesn't want to make you miserable. He doesn't want to take away all your fun. He wants to teach you how to really live. He says, come to me, I'm gentle. I'm lowly. You can trust me. I'm for you. And so, seeing all that then, what the rest that Jesus offers us is, and why we need it, and why only he can get it, then in just the few minutes we have left, we need to, begin, we need to finish by asking one more question, and that's just this, then how do we get it? How do we get it? How do we even come close to even beginning to enter into this rest he offers us? And there are really two things the text speaks about that have to happen. And that help us see what repentance and faith looks like. And I've just got time to just barely mention them to you and then we need to be done. But the first is just this. If you look up in verses 27 and 28, or excuse me, 25 and 26, there are two things. The first is just this. You have to orient your heart to grace. You have to orient your heart to grace. Jesus is saying you'll never learn to rest until you come to see that salvation is a work of sovereign grace. You see that statement in verse 27? No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That's just a statement of of the fact that we are saved by grace, that God has to open your eyes. That's the only way it works. You can't earn salvation. You can't buy it. You can't work for it. You can't demand it. It's a gift that has to be given to you. Salvation is a work that Jesus must do for you. And that's why why it's not the wise or the powerful or the noble or the righteous or those with a good work ethic that get it, it's the weak and the broken and sinners. And Jesus says, the scary thing is that, he says it is hidden from the wise and understanding and revealed to little children. And so grace is a gift given to the least deserving and refused to the most deserving. And so, if you think, still, that it's your good works that save you, then here's what you're going to do. You're going to work and you're going to work and you're going to work and you're going to work. Because if it's your good works that saves you, then you've got to continue in those works. But when you begin to see that salvation is a work of sovereign grace, that you did absolutely nothing to cause God to notice you, then you can rest. So all you need 
To become a Christian is nothing, but we all have something. And so the call is to repent of our somethings and to come to him with nothing and to learn to rest. But then the second thing, and this is just it, this is the end, and that is that we need to not only orient our hearts towards grace, but we need to adopt a posture of childlikeness. You see, this is how the gospel works. You have to posture yourselves towards humility and dependence. God loves humility. That's what verse 26 means. God delights in humility. The kingdom of God belongs to little children. It belongs to the poor and the needy. God set it up that way on purpose to magnify his grace. And that means to experience the rest and the delight that Jesus is offering, we have to posture ourselves toward humility and dependence. And the more successful you are, the harder it's going to be for you to rest. The more competent you feel, the more power, the more material resources you have, the harder it's going to be for you to rest because those things give you the illusion of control. What Jesus is calling us to is to repent of trying to control our life through our hard work. Repent of trying to secure our future and provide for ourselves. That's God's job. And I was fortunate enough to grow up in a home where I had a father who provided for me. I didn't have to worry about food or clothes. I didn't pay for college. I didn't pay for graduate school. I never paid for a car until I was married. I mean, just a joy as I look back on it of how well my dad provided for me and the rest that it offered me and how I didn't really even think about those things. And what Jesus is saying is if you're a Christian, God is a father to you. Like that. And if you're ever going to rest, you have to stop insisting on being an adult and become like a child. And now, just one last thing. Here's how important this is. And this is, I hope we're going to come back to this and talk about it next week. Uh, It is so important to God and so important to Jesus that we learn not only to work hard but to rest well that he says every seven days you better take one where you give yourself to one thing and that is to figure out how to rest. And so all that teaching about Jesus on the Sabbath I think we're going to come back to next week because in a culture that doesn't know how to rest one of the ways that we become a holy people that witness to the reality of the gospel is that we learn to be a people who do rest and the best way to learn to rest is to take one day and to say, on this day, we're going to rest as well as we can. And that's what the Sabbath is about. So, let's pray together and ask God to come and teach us. And then as we sing this song, I pray it would be, for some of us, just a, a prayer, and for some of us, a confession, and for some of us, a, just longing, Jesus, come and teach us to rest. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and reveal them to little children. And so give us the faith to repent of all the ways we're trying to provide for ourselves and prove ourselves. Uh, Give us the courage to repent of all of our somethings and to come to you with nothing. Uh, Increase our faith by increasing our understanding of your love and your care for us uh, so that we can stop working so hard and learn to sit down and be quiet. And hear the faint trace of the song of love you sing over us. Thank you for the promise of Zephaniah 3. That you rejoice over us with singing and that you can quiet our hearts with your love. And so, um, even now in this moment of silence, would you just begin to quiet us? Lord Jesus, would you move upon us in the Spirit? Would you send your Spirit to come and move upon us now and just quiet us? Quiet the white noise of anxiety. Teach us to rest. That we may glorify you. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So as you celebrate this weekend, 
by grilling out on the barbecue and lounging around because of the sacrifices that young men and women have made over the course of many, many years in the life of our country. Uh, Their sacrifice uh, creates our rest. So here, by faith, I pray God gives you ears to hear the cry of Jesus from the cross saying, it is finished, so that through his sacrifice... Uh, there can be a rest that comes into your life that permeates everything you do. So rest well this weekend. Uh, in your parenting, rest. In your watching baseball, rest. Rest because we've got work to do. <laughs> and so we need to learn to rest well so that we can enter into that work well. And so this rest comes from hearing and receiving this benediction. And so hear the words of God spoken over your life. This is the reason you can rest because these are the words that he has to say to you. So receive them. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace and rest.